Good morning, church. The morning, the reading this morning comes from John 20, verses 1 to 18. And you're just going to have to deal with me being a little bit sick this morning, if that's okay. <laughs> John 20, verses 1 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look inside the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God. Well said, thank you very much indeed. Um, can I encourage you to keep the Bible open at the passage that uh, Seb has just read for us? I think you'll find that a help to you. And uh, let's ask the Lord to help us as we try and understand the message there. Heavenly Father, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So please speak to us now as you have spoken to your people throughout the ages. On this glorious Easter morning, reveal yourself and your will for our lives that we might display the power of the resurrection in everything we say and do. Hear our prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, it's a great passage. 
But um, if we're going to get to the heart of the message in that text, uh, we have to begin by noticing that there is a puzzle. Um, It's a puzzle that actually no atheist and no skeptic has ever been able to explain. Uh, Let me tell you what it is. Uh, The Gospel writers tell us that during his ministry, uh, Jesus told his disciples on no less than three separate occasions that he would die, but he also said that his death wouldn't be the end. So, for example, in uh, Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And uh, he said the same thing on at least two other occasions. So Jesus told them in words of one syllable that he would be raised to life on the third day. So isn't it interesting that when the third day came, not one of the disciples, not one, went on his own initiative to the tomb to wait for Jesus to appear. Isn't that extraordinary? Nobody said, well, it's the third day. Uh, I wonder if Jesus will appear today just as he promised. Only Mary Magdalene. Now, friends, that can only mean one thing, can't it? It must mean that the disciples didn't believe that the resurrection was possible. They were skeptics. Now, their reasons for not believing may have been slightly different from most skeptics today, but here's the puzzle. By the time we get to the book of Acts, uh, the disciples have totally changed their minds. They can't stop talking about the resurrection. So listen to the Apostle Peter just six weeks after the events described in John chapter 20. He's addressing the crowd in Jerusalem, and this is what he says. Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And uh, the rest of the New Testament as it unfolds shows us all of the disciples totally transformed from being frightened skeptics into being courageous preachers. And at the heart of their message was an absolutely passionate conviction that Jesus is not dead, he's alive. And to a man they insisted that the resurrection is absolutely central to Christianity. And they testified to that conviction in transformed lives and also in shed blood. So for the next few minutes, I want to take a a fresh look at uh, John's account in John chapter 20 so we can reach our own conclusion about this unique event. To help us, we're going to consider the passage under four headings. The witnesses to the resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection, 
the promise of the resurrection and the meaning or significance of the resurrection for you and me today. So let's start then with the the witnesses of the resurrection. Now friends, the first thing to notice is that the testimony to the resurrection comes from people who were actually there and who saw what happened. That is an absolutely fundamental principle that runs all the way through John's book. Uh, It's a principle that uh, he's given to us, actually in this very chapter, just look ahead if you will, to verse 30 and verse 31. Can we all see verse 30 in our Bible? Uh, It says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I know that some of you are so familiar with uh, those verses that uh, you sort of, they kind of fly over the top of your head. And I think what will help us to see what John is actually getting at is if we look at those verses in reverse order. So first of all, in verse 31, John says he wants us, the reader, to have life. In other words, he wants us to discover who we are, why we're here. And he wants to show us how we can enjoy a life that's full of meaning and purpose, starting now, stretching on into eternity. Second, working backwards, also in verse 31, he says that we get this life by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, what is belief? Well, some people say that belief is actually no more than wishful thinking. The Bible says that belief is actually something totally different. Belief in the Bible always has both a trusting side and an intellectual side. Thirdly, John has provided us with real evidence. Notice in verse 30, he says he's written down all the evidence we need in order to believe. And then fourthly, and probably most important of all, he says that the evidence comes from those who were on the spot. Because notice the phrase, he's written down what Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. They were there, they saw what happened. Now, in our passage, the passage that Seb read for us, verse 8 is a perfect example of the principle. Have a look at it. Speaking about himself, John says, finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. And all the way through the chapter, John keeps kind of hammering away on the same point, that the disciples saw the risen Lord Jesus 
and they believed. So there's no wishful thinking anywhere in John's book. In verse 18, Mary Magdalene says, I have seen the Lord. Verse 20, we're told, the disciples saw the Lord. And in verse 25, the disciples tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Now, we'd be extremely dim, wouldn't we, if we missed the point. John is saying that we can only dismiss the account of the resurrection by ignoring the evidence of those who were actually there. Somebody said that more people have come to faith in the Lord Jesus by studying John's Gospel than any other book in the New Testament. And surely that's one of the reasons why. Well, what did these eyewitnesses actually see? What is the evidence for the resurrection? That's our second heading. Well, first, um, in verse 1, Mary Magdalene saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, here's something interesting. In this passage, John uses three different words for the verb translated to see. In our English Bibles, we only have the one word, to see. But in the original language, John uses three different words, and uh, each one has a slightly different meaning. The word in verse 1 means quite simply that Mary observed the situation. Uh, she didn't pause to think about who moved the stone or why they might have done it. Instead, she immediately reaches the conclusion that the body has been snatched. And so she goes to fetch Peter and John, who come running to the tomb. And John, who's the younger disciple, he outruns Peter, he gets to the tomb first. Just as an aside, notice the little character detail in verse 5. It says that John looked, but he didn't go in. And actually, from what we know of John, he does seem to have been a kind of sensitive, perceptive, thoughtful person. He doesn't rush into anything. But then the Apostle Peter comes huffing and puffing along behind him, and he immediately charges into the tomb. And that is absolutely typical of Peter's impulsive nature. It's only a detail, but it's very true to life, and I think it adds weight to the truthfulness of John's account. So Peter went into the tomb, and verse 6, he saw the strips of linen lying there. Now that's the second thing the eyewitnesses saw. And here, the, the verb saw comes from a word that means to look at something critically. Uh, the word in the original language gives us the English word theory. So Peter looked at the strips of linen. He tried to work out a theory to explain the missing body. And John especially draws our attention to the strips of linen. He mentions them three times. Uh, it's there in verse 5. He says it again in verse 6. 
and he mentions them again in verse 7. Now, what does he want us to understand? Well, cast your mind back to when Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb back in John chapter 11. Do you remember that Jesus had to instruct his friends to remove the strips of linen in which Lazarus had been wrapped when he died? But here, although the body of Jesus is missing, the strips of linen have been left behind. And notice especially that they weren't kind of unwound and then neatly folded. No, in verse 5 and again in verse 6, they're just lying there, just as they had been when they contained the body. Peter also saw the headcloth, verse 7. He saw it folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And uh, John Stott says that a more helpful translation than folded up would be twirled. In other words, the headcloth was still in its turban shape as it had been when it was wound around Jesus' head. So listen to John Stott's conclusion, quote, A glance at the grave clothes proved the reality and indicated the nature of the resurrection. They had been neither touched nor folded nor manipulated by any human being. They were like a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly has emerged. And that's why, verse 8, John saw and believed. And here, the verb translated saw means to understand. Um, it's talking about what you might say when you've kind of been wrestling with a problem, perhaps you've been doing a crossword or something like that, and suddenly you say to your friend, Ah, now I see. And what John is doing here is sharing with us the evidence that persuaded him personally to believe that Jesus had risen. And he is absolutely confident that that's all that you and I need. Now, over the years, countless people have scrutinized the evidence for the resurrection because, quite honestly, so much depends upon it in the Christian faith. So listen to the verdict of one senior lawyer. Uh, this was Sir Edward Clark, QC. He says this, As a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the High Court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence, and a truthful witness is never trying to impress the audience. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class, and as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. Well, that's rather good, isn't it? So what have we got? We've got credible eyewitnesses. We've got compelling evidence. 
Thirdly, let's think about the promise of the resurrection. Now, throughout our series in John's Gospel, I think we've noticed that every significant detail concerning concerning the death of Jesus had been announced by God before it happened. It was all under God's sovereign control. We're familiar with that. What we might not be quite so familiar with is that this applies to the resurrection as well. But you'll notice in verse 9 that John says that Scripture teaches not only that Jesus had to die, but also that he had to rise from the dead. Now, here's the question. Where on earth does Scripture say that? Well, the Old Testament talks about a number of men who God set apart at different times in Israel's history to rescue his people from desperate circumstances. But in order to do their rescuing work, God first had to, as it were, resurrect these particular men, these deliverers, from what looked like certain death. So, for example... Uh, You remember that in the book of Genesis, do you remember Joseph? There he was on death row, apparently no hope of escape from prison. He was as good as dead. But when the famine came, Joseph experienced literally a miraculous resurrection. And he became the saviour of God's people. Or think of Moses. Do you remember Moses was sentenced to death by Pharaoh, seemed certain to die, didn't he, as an infant, in that tiny basket on the Nile. But he too experienced a miraculous resurrection, and he lived to become the one who redeemed Israel from bondage, didn't he? And we find exactly the same pattern in the lives of David. Do you remember David in the cave? Daniel in the lion's den? Jonah? belly of the whale, and there are others. Now these kind of mini resurrection experiences of these deliverers were all pointing forward to the big event that we're celebrating this morning. Because Isaiah 53, again in the Old Testament, speaks about the servant of the Lord. And it says that the servant of the Lord will be sacrificed as a guilt offering by the will of God. He really will die. We saw that on Good Friday. But his death won't be the end. And instead, through Isaiah, God gives this amazing promise. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Okay, that's all in the Old Testament. This morning, I want to show you what Jesus himself said about this. So please will you keep a finger in John chapter 20 and travel back with me to John chapter 2. Gospel of John chapter 2, page 750 in the Church Bible. Now this is right at the very beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And uh, he's already begun to cause quite a stir, particularly in the temple at Jerusalem. So some of these Jewish religious leaders, they come to Jesus and put him on the spot. 
Chapter 2, verse 18. Can we all see that? Then the Jews demanded of Jesus, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, well, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. Now stay there and just notice, will you, in verse 18, that the religious authorities ask Jesus for a miraculous sign. Of course, the answer Jesus gives is so odd, it doesn't really seem like an answer at all. But one of the unique characteristics of John's Gospel is that John has recorded just seven miracles or seven signs to tell us who Jesus is. And what that little exchange is telling us in John chapter 2, right at the beginning of the book, is that the resurrection of Jesus will be the seventh sign. It will be the ultimate sign. And it's telling us, isn't it, that the resurrection will prove that the risen Lord Jesus is the true temple. Now, what is a temple? Well, a temple is the place where God and humanity meet. Jesus is the only meeting place between God and man. And that, my friends, is the promise of the resurrection. If you want to meet God, come to Jesus. And you will. And it brings us, lastly, to the meaning of the resurrection. Now, in, uh, back in John 20, if you're going to come there, Mary Magdalene is the first person to see the risen Christ. That, of course, makes her an expert witness, doesn't it? And her encounter with Jesus contains really important lessons about the significance of the resurrection for you and me this morning. Let me mention just three of these lessons. Lesson number one is that we can know Jesus personally. What's particularly interesting here is that the risen Jesus is still the same person and yet he's also different, isn't he? Mary didn't immediately recognize him. And in Luke's gospel, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, well, they didn't immediately recognize him either. And later in this very same chapter in John chapter 20, we're told that the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus can enter a locked room without anyone knowing how on earth he got there. And yet, when Jesus speaks, Mary knows who it is straight away, doesn't she? Notice the obvious point. Mary is in a terrible state, isn't she? Because 
She thinks Jesus has gone. He's absent. But all the time, he is standing right beside her. Does that sound familiar? You ever felt like that? I know I have. But you see, the night before he died, the Lord Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him or her. So my friend, that means if you know Jesus as your teacher and your Lord, if you are serious about following him, he is always with you. He's made his home with you. So we can know him personally. Lesson number two, he knows us personally. Now, we don't know very much about Mary Magdalene. Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus had rescued Mary from a life of satanic control. Apparently, she'd been possessed by seven demons. So, what would Mary have been thinking as she stood crying by the tomb? Well, quite obviously, she would have been anxious that with Jesus out of the way that the demons would come back. Look at verse 18. Jesus said to her, Mary. See, he calls her by name. I wonder what his tone was when he said that. Uh, did Jesus say it reassuringly? Mary. Or did he say it in a tone of gentle reproach? Mary. Whatever tone Jesus might have used, it was certainly full of love and compassion because Jesus knew exactly why she was crying. And Mary turned towards him and in Aramaic cries out, Rabboni, which means my teacher. Now friends, you see, so often I think we tend to forget that Jesus knows absolutely everything about us. He knows all our weaknesses. He knows all our fears. And uh, in those times when we find ourselves in the pit of despair, as we all do, he doesn't expect us to go away and sort it out before we come and pray. No, he expects us to come to him with all of our confused thoughts and lay them at his feet. And those are the moments when we really know that he's right there with us. Lesson number three. Lesson number three is that we have a message the whole world needs to hear. Verse 17, Jesus said to Mary, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Meaning, I think, don't hold on to me because I'm actually going to come to you in a much more personal way by the Holy Spirit. But go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, friends, please will you notice the pattern. Mary meets the risen Lord. He commissions her 
to go and tell other people. And so she goes obediently to the disciples with the terrific news in verse 18, I have seen the Lord. Now that is the pattern for us if we're Christian people this morning. The whole point of the resurrection is that we can meet Jesus today. Not of course in the flesh, but uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and by faith. And when we do, the experience is just as life-changing for us as it was for the first disciples. Jesus comes into our lives and he transforms our broken, sorrowing, fearful selves with the sheer delight of knowing him personally. And when it happens to you, even if you were as sceptical as those disciples were on Easter morning, who couldn't even be bothered to go to the tomb, well, like them, you too will become a fearful, uh, a fearless witness. What a marvellous thing that would be, wouldn't it, this Easter? Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you for shattering the power of death through the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that you are always with us by the Holy Spirit, that you know all about our anxieties and fears. You know the very worst about us, and yet you love us with an everlasting love. Engrave this word upon our hearts that we might rise above every trial and test with the comfort and the wisdom Jesus gives. For it is in his name we ask it. Amen.